All right. So we are still coming, working on the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. So we've made it to John 16. So this is a lengthy conversation that Jesus has with the disciples after they get done eating the Passover meal. So by their reckoning, um, it's early Friday morning. By our reckoning, we're getting into Thursday night, probably late in the night at this point. And I think at this point, they're probably walking and talking at the same time, probably walking from the upper room to outside of the city. They're eventually going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Last week, we studied the portion of that where Jesus talks about how he is the vine and they need to abide in him. And then he also warns them that they're going to experience persecution from the world, that the world hates him, and that they can expect to to be persecuted just like he was. So that's where we're going to pick up. It's 16.5. And Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, Where are you going? And the confusing thing about that is if you remember where we've been, turn back to chapter 13. At verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? So why does Jesus say in chapter 16, none of you ask me, where are you going? And to be honest, I'm not sure um, we have a good explanation. There's one thing I'm sure of, which is the secular scholar's idea is wrong. So if you were to study someone that doesn't believe in inspiration, what they typically say is, well, when you see this kind of tension, um, it means uh, that this is evidence that this gospel was not written by a guy named John. It was put together by some anonymous editor who slapped together various stories circulating among the church, and that editor either didn't care enough to edit out this contradiction or was so sloppy they didn't notice it. And I agree with conservative scholars that say, well, that's not a very persuasive explanation. If you read John from start to finish, you've got... Um, It's clear that this writer has a distinctive style that shows up from beginning to end. There are themes that are at the beginning of the gospel that show up throughout it, like light and darkness, like the series of signs that are given, um, all sorts of things that indicate the stories written by one careful author and so I know, I'm confident John's aware of the tension between these two verses. There is some solution, even if I don't think I know it. The two ones that are typically circulating the most among commentators are, one emphasizes basically the present tense. So the NIV translates this verse, 
yet none of you asks me. You could also translate it, yet none of you is asking me. And so this view basically says, right now, none of you is asking me. And so it acknowledges that Peter has previously asked the question, but the topic has basically been dropped. And although it's just three chapters to us, in terms of conversation, the original question asked by Peter's way back in the conversation. So that's one solution, is that Jesus is saying, none of you is asking me right now. The other solution that's out there basically says, well, sometimes people say one thing, but it's really a way of expressing something different. So if you go back to chapter 13, where Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter responds by saying, Lord, where are you going? Um, Some commentators argue Peter's not really asking where are you going so much as why are you going away and why can't I go with you? That's what he's really concerned about in that moment. I, I think if you forced me to choose... What I really think is both solutions are flawed, and I feel like we're not, we haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, But if you force me to pick, I like the present tense idea better. I think if what Peter really meant was not, Lord, where are you going, John probably would have included something in the text to suggest that, given that John knows what's coming in chapter 16. But I don't really know. What is clear is that what Jesus is trying to do is prod the disciples to get past their grief at the prospect of being separated by Jesus and kind of get out of their own heads. And he's going to ask them to focus on the good things associated with that rather than wallowing in their own grief. And if you say it like that, that sounds kind of harsh. It's like, well, Jesus, that's not grief counseling 101. But if you think about where we are in the conversation, we're a long way in. And Jesus starts with some very comforting things. I think he's acknowledged that this is stressful to them. So he's given them an opportunity to kind of process it. And the time is short. So now he's got to move on to other things. So he's prodding them to look at the situation, the bigger picture. So he says, but I tell you the truth, which says what I'm about to, that's another way of saying pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. It is for your good that I'm going away. So yes, it's sad that we'll be separated, but also focus on what's good. Unless I go away, The counselor or the advocate or the comforter, whatever word you like, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the good thing that he wants the disciples to focus on right now is that the Holy Spirit will come to them if Jesus goes away. Which also raises interesting questions. Um, No one thinks what Jesus means is that he and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place at once, and so he literally has to be out of the room for the Holy Spirit to be in the room. No one thinks that. Um, 
Basically, what Jesus is saying is the way God the Father has chosen the plan of salvation to unfold is that I have to die, be resurrected, and go back to the Father for the Spirit to be poured out. Okay? And that, I think, it would be consistent with what people who read the Old Testament would expect. If you read the Old Testament, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is very much something that's associated with the Messianic age, what they would have thought of as the end times. So to them, the idea that the Messiah is going to appear, his kingdom is going to manifest, one of the signs of that is going to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit makes sense. And I think if you think about it theologically, it also is logical. Um, it makes sense that the atoning death of Christ, which cleanses us from sin, is what makes us fit vessels for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I think the order of Jesus dying on the cross and then the Holy Spirit being poured out makes sense theologically too. And so Jesus says, unless I do those things, the Holy Spirit's not going to come to you. So there is a good aspect to this separation. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that so far? All right. Let's keep going. Now he switches gears and talks about another thing that the Holy Spirit does in relation to the world. So he says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. And that word that the NIV translates convict could be translated other ways. It could be translated convince or prove wrong. Um, it is a word that basically means to conclusively demonstrate. It was often used in a legal context. So earlier we learned that the Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's ministries is to bear witness to Christ. And we talked about how uh, witnesses don't argue, right? So this would be a different role. This would include actually proving to someone, hey, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Okay? So I think convicting is a good translation. Convincing would be another good translation. Although, the one problem I would have with convincing is that uh, you can prove to someone that they're wrong and not convince them that they're wrong, right? I see this all the time in court where the prosecutor persuades 12 people that someone was guilty and the person who's convicted walks out thinking they're still innocent. So, you can be presented with conclusive proof and suppress it. And I would argue in Romans, Paul says that happens all the time. Um, the truth is out there, and we choose, because of our own wickedness, to suppress that. Okay? All right. Um, so part of what the Holy Spirit does is he's presenting proof to the world. John's going to talk about three areas where he does that. Uh, one of the questions before we get there is, well, who is really the audience? Uh, some people would say what he's doing is he's convicting the world before God. So imagine a courtroom where the world is on trial, the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney, 
and God is the jury. Um, another viewpoint would be, oh, that's not what's going on. What he's trying to do is he's presenting proof to the world. For those who respond positively, that results in their conversion and then being brought out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ. There are other people who don't respond positively. For them, that serves as another basis of condemnation when they're ultimately judged. And so the second view is that this is really the Holy Spirit trying to convince the world. And I think in context, that second view is the one I like better, that this is something um, the Holy Spirit does to the world. And one of the things that I think it's comforting, a practical application, is let's suppose you have an encounter with a neighbor or a coworker, someone on a plane, the conversation takes a turn into spiritual matters, you're wondering, should I go with that? Should I talk to them about it? One of the things you don't know is, well, how long and in what ways has the Holy Spirit already been working on this person? I think the Holy Spirit starts working on people long before um, they're converted in most cases. And this is describing one of the ministries the Holy Spirit does. And so um, you don't know how that conversation will turn out, but I think you can be confident the Holy Spirit is part of that encounter Um, both to help you, but also to prepare the person for that encounter. And the three things uh, John specifically says that the Holy Spirit will work on is uh, in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit shows the world, evidence the world is wrong about three topics, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then more specifically in verse 9, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. And if you go back and kind of track through John and his epistles, one of the themes that emerges is that John portrays rejecting Jesus' claims about himself and refusing to follow Jesus or accept Jesus' authority is sort of the ultimate or decisive sin. And if you think about the meaning of sin, sin is literally missing the mark. It's like God has put a target out there and you missed it when you did something or you failed to do something. And so the ultimate miss is rejecting Jesus' claims. And if you think about what's about to happen... The world is about to say to Jesus, we not only reject your claims, we think you deserve to die, and we are condemning you to death. And so the world is about to formally proclaim, not only is Jesus wrong, it's not a sin to think he's wrong. In fact, he deserves to die. And I think in John's mind, that's the ultimate miss, that's the ultimate sin, And so part of what the Holy Spirit is going to do after Jesus goes back to heaven is convince, try to convince people in the world, present them with evidence. That view is wrong. Jesus really is who he says he is. And so to the extent you've been believing otherwise, you've been sinning, you need to change that view. 
Then the next thing is in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. This one's a little tricky. So why um, here I think the focus is not so much on what righteousness is, but if you think about what Jesus does when he's in, on earth, he goes around confronting people with the fact that they are sinners and they need the righteousness he can provide, right? That's a role he performs while he's on earth. I think the point here is that when he goes to heaven, he doesn't personally do that anymore. The Holy Spirit does that for him, often in concert with believers. And so one of the things he's going to do is convince the world it's wrong about righteousness. And so part of what the world is doing when it rejects Jesus at the cross is it's saying, we don't need this righteousness you say you provide. We're just fine the way we are. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is convince people, nope, that's not true. And finally, in regard to judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. So part of what's going on on the cross is the world is saying, we have the right to judge Jesus. We find him wanting. We find him deserving of death. We condemn him to die. And what John and Jesus say is, no, no. What actually happens is by doing that, you're rejecting the Son of God. Therefore, you're condemning yourself. And so part of what the Holy Spirit does is convince the world, you got that wrong too. Um, As it stands now, you deserve to be condemned, and you will be condemned along with Satan unless you change your mind and accept Jesus' claims. So the Holy Spirit's out there working on people already, um, presenting that truth to them, and then we come along behind the Holy Spirit, and we also bear witness. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? Okay, so let's keep going. So then Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, right? And so now we have to say, you can't handle the truth, right? (laughs) That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Um, So the question is, why can't they handle the truth right now? Um, The two theories that are out there, and I don't think we have to pick, is one is that they're overwhelmed with information, and so just intellectually, Jesus has hit them with so much stuff already. He's got more to say to them, but they just can't process it right now. Alternatively, it could be an emotional thing. They've overloaded with emotion. Um, When you get emotional, your mind stops taking in information, so they just can't handle much. And if you think about everything Jesus has said to them, he's hit them with a lot of stuff already. So he's told them, one of you is going to betray me. You're not going to have me around anymore. The world's going to hate you and persecute you. And I'm inaugurating the new covenant. So, I mean, he's already hit them with a lot that they weren't expecting any of that when they went into dinner, right? They're totally expecting the narrative to take a different tack. When they go to that dinner, they're probably expecting to talk about what's going to happen when everyone recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and installs him as king. So the rug's been pulled out from under them. It's understandable. 
So one of the things the Holy Spirit does for them is that, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit will help them understand things they need to know that Jesus wasn't able to tell them. And I think all truth means all the truth that God wants the disciples to know about God and the mission the disciples need to accomplish. All truth does not mean any information the disciples could dream up that they wanted to know, like what is the best investment right now, or how do I invent a flying car. There's no promise to provide that kind of information. It's truth about God and what the disciples need to know. He goes on to say, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. You will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And this um, is very Trinitarian language. It shows that... um, The Holy Spirit functions in relation to Christ much the same way Christ functions in relation to God the Father. So one of the big themes throughout the gospel has been that God sent Jesus into the world. Jesus spoke only and exactly what the Father wanted Jesus to reveal to the world. So the Holy Spirit will come into the world at Jesus' behest to say and do exactly what Jesus wants the Holy Spirit to do. And Jesus makes the argument that um, that's how the Trinity works, that's how the members bring honor to each other, support each other, and that neither one thinks they're taking anything away from the others when they each fulfill their separate functions. There's this incredible cycle of honor and support and love. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right, so let's keep going. So then Jesus makes this cryptic remark, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. And the word that the NIV translates um, as in a little while means a small amount, like insignificantly small amount. So if you wanted to use a more casual interpretation, you could say, in a minute, you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. So in one minute, you won't see me. Then after another minute, you will. Probably sounded like a riddle to the disciples. So some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean? By saying, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean? We don't understand what he's saying. Then Jesus said they wanted to ask about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me, then after a little while you won't see me, Um, then after a little while you will see me. So John's basically repeated that phrase four times in the space of four verses, so he really wants you to notice that the disciples are still all confused by this. 
And I think the simple explanation is right, which is what Jesus means that in a matter of hours, he's going to die and they won't be able to see him. Then there's going to be a time period. He's going to rise again and he's going to appear to them after his resurrection. And they are going to see him for a few times before he goes back to heaven. Okay. So I think that straightforward explanation's right, but what John, I think by repeating it, wants you to see is that the disciples still don't get any of that at this point. So even now, they aren't thinking that the end of this story is going to be Jesus is going to die in less than 24 hours. Okay? And I think John wants us to see that. And so... Jesus does his best to straighten them out. He says, I tell you the truth, which again basically means pay attention, listen up, something really important is coming. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. So weeping and mourning are terms very much associated in Jewish society with funerals, with grieving after someone dies. So he's telling them, you are going to be in a state where you're going to be mourning like I died. Okay? So I'm not just talking about some vague going off on a business trip. It's an occasion that's going to make you weep and mourn, but conversely, the world is going to be rejoicing when this happens. All right? However, your grief will turn to joy. And then he uses the analogy of childbirth. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Okay? And so if you think about childbirth, especially in the first century where there are no really helpful drugs... Um, it really is an incredible roller coaster of pain. And then if you have a healthy baby and the mom is healthy too, you have this very swift transition to joy that that pain produced this good outcome. And it's this quick reversal. And yeah, I realize he's saying this to a group of men and none of us get it. Let's just acknowledge that up front. But it's still a good analogy. We can imagine, even if we haven't really felt it. Um, And it's also an analogy that's used throughout the Old Testament. So um, it's a real common analogy in the Old Testament used by prophets to explain divine judgment. And so they'll often warn Israel, hey, divine judgment's coming And it's going to be like labor pains where you didn't know exactly when it was going to come. And when it comes, it's going to be disabling and you're going to stop what you're doing and you're going to be sorry and wish you'd done better, right? Um, But there's this one interesting passage in Isaiah 26 that I think is worth looking at here. So go with me to Isaiah 26. So we're going to pick up at 16. 
So Isaiah says, Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth, rise and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. So typical Old Testament talking about labor pains and associating it with divine judgment. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to win. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. So here Isaiah acknowledges that the spiritual discipline doesn't actually produce a good outcome by the nation. That even though they go through this discipline, the discipline they experience doesn't produce salvation. And this is kind of ties into one of the questions we had very early in the class, which was about how Jews view the Old Testament now versus how Christians view it. And one of the arguments I think that you'd see from rabbis frequently is that the way grace and salvation comes is through the suffering of the people of God. And you can find verses in the Old Testament that you could construe as supporting that view. This is one of the passages that I think doesn't support that view, where the prophet acknowledges that even when people experience divine discipline, that doesn't allow us to provide salvation for anybody. So the atonement that's necessary doesn't come from us, even when we experience divine judgment. But the prophet still expresses hope in the Lord. So look at 19. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her, and she will conceal her slain no longer. So Isaiah says, yes, judgment's coming, but don't lose hope in the Lord because he will provide resurrection. And so the birth that's actually productive comes through Jesus' suffering, not our own. And so when we encounter divine discipline, we need to look to the Lord and Jesus for grace. Don't assume that what we're doing is accomplishing salvation by our own works. And so if Jesus is alluding to that, he's saying now is the time when the productive birth will happen. All right, questions, comments, concerns about And Yeah, and so I would say um, discipline and suffering can be spiritually productive. Like, it should lead to repentance. But the reason repentance is worthwhile ultimately depends on 
the salvation God provides to us. It's not like repentance has its own merit that earns salvation. That's, we need the repentance from God. We're not creating the justification that we need by repenting, if that distinction makes any sense. I think that's what Isaiah is saying. All right, let's go back to John then. So he says, so with you, now is your time of grief. So they're getting so close to Jesus' arrest that at this point he's comfortable saying the term now. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So if you flip over to John 20... Verse 20, here we have Jesus appearing to the disciples. And he says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So that's why I think when John's talking about this, he's talking about the post-resurrection appearances when he says, you'll see me after a little while. And when they see him, that will communicate to them that Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. He rose from the grave. He has been victorious. And that's a victory that no one can take away from them. And so John portrays Jesus' resurrection as the decisive victory over Satan and the forces of the world. And as we know now, that victory plays out over a time period of centuries and centuries We don't know how long it's going to continue to play out, but um, in John's mind and Jesus' mind, that's the decisive victory. The world can't take that away from us. So, you know, one of the uh, phrases you see on Twitter a lot these days, if you pay attention to current events in Twitter, is right side of history. You've got to get on the right side of history. And it's kind of a substitute for the concept of righteousness and being right or righteous, which our society doesn't like to talk about. But we are comfortable saying you need to get on the right side of history, so change your viewpoint on this issue. And what John is saying, uh, the only right side of history is being on Jesus' side. Anything else isn't going to be on the right side of the history eventually, okay? And, it, and there's a good argument that this uh, statement is an allusion to another passage in Isaiah. So go back with me to Isaiah 66. So the last chapter of Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And at verse 14... He says, when you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. And the commentators say uh, the verse in John that we just looked at quotes that little phrase, your heart will rejoice. And so um, 
John could be drawing a allusion between Jesus' resurrection and the victory that leads to the new heavens and the new earth. And it's saying, because I rise again, you can be assured that I have overcome the world and the victory is assured and we're going to get to the new heavens and the new earth. And the world can't take that away from you. All right? So there's this incredible reversal. The world first rejoices, but then it grieves, and its grief lasts in eternity. We mourn, but only for a short time, and then we get a source of joy that lasts for eternity. So it's all about short-term versus long-term. Right, questions, comments, concerns? Keep going. Okay. He says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So this is confusing. First, uh, in that day is referring to when they start to rejoice. He says, you will no longer ask me anything. Well, what does that mean? So I felt like the best explanation I saw is imagine what it was like to be one of the disciples following Jesus around during his ministry. I think you would have felt like you constantly did not know what was coming next and where the story was headed. And you've got these hopes about where it's headed. Um, It's very clear they hope they're headed towards Jesus being recognized as the Messiah and rightful ruler of Israel and establishing his kingdom. But they're never quite sure. And even now, hours before his arrest, that's still what they're hoping, and it turns out to be wrong. When you get to Acts, so after they've seen the risen Christ, you see a totally different picture. Like when you read Peter's sermon at Pentecost, you see a guy who seems to understand what God's plan is for Jesus in a way he doesn't now. And so what I think this comment means is that after the resurrection, you will understand God's plan for Jesus in a way that you don't now, and so you won't have to ask me a question like, what does it mean in a little while we'll see you no more, and then after a little while we will see you. You'll understand those things because you will have lived through them. I will have explained them to you after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit will continue to remind you of what all this meant, and so you will understand that what needed to happen was Jesus would die, that death would provide atonement, then you will be sent out to witness to that. You will get all that, and you won't have to keep asking me that kind of question. Right? You will continue to ask God the Father to provide you stuff. So there will be plenty of things uh, that you still will have that are requests. You'll be able to submit those to God, and you'll be able to do it in Christ's name. And as Jesus explains, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. So one of the things that I think is clear in hindsight is the disciples don't get the Trinity while they're walking around with Jesus. 
They probably are praying during this time period, but it looks like none of them are daring to assume they can pray in Jesus' name. But once they've lived through the resurrection and they understand Jesus is God and everything that's happened, then they will pray in Jesus' name. They will understand that they can literally ask God the Father for something on the authority of Christ. And I feel like if you have any self-awareness at all, this is really good news, that you can ask for things from God, not based on who you are, but based on Jesus' authority. The, th- the qualification is that that then has to be something that Jesus wants. Um, if you're working for me as my agent, you can't go to someone else and ask them for something in my name that I don't want you to do. Right? If I tell you to go to Walmart because I want you to buy milk, and here's $5 to buy milk, then you don't get to take off the target and say, I want an Xbox, and here's my $5 deposit in Jim's name, right? You did it, but you didn't do it in my name. You did it on your own. And so we are limited to asking God the Father in Christ's name to things Christ wants. But whatever we ask that is within Christ's will, God the Father is willing to do for us. So that's a promise we've heard over and over. He says, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And I think that ties back to the joy he's talked about in the passage about the vine. And if you go back to that passage at 1511, he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And just before that, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So the idea of joy is tied very closely to staying within the will of Christ. If you do that, then you can have close fellowship with God and you can experience joy from God that the world can't take away from you. All right. Any concerns about that? Yeah. Do you think this has any implications for the idea of directing your prayers to God and not to Jesus? A lot of people pray to Jesus directly. Oh, um, so we'll talk more about that because I think the next verse clarifies that. So I do want to get into that. And so... Um, He says at 25, Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So the question that was asked was, is it wrong to pray to Jesus? Does this passage comment on that? I'll do you one better. I think we should even ask, do we need to pray to St. James or Mary? 
and the reason I'm saying that is because of Laura's question. Um, and so I think, you, like, when I was in seminary, if you ever hear a Catholic scholar explain why Catholics pray to saints, you can explain in a way that's not idolatry. So the explanation I've heard is that the theory is, well, those people are in heaven. They've already been glorified. They don't sin anymore. They're in heaven with God. Why wouldn't that be a better person to express a request to God than me? And I think, yeah, you can see humility in that. You can see that that's not idolatrous. I'm not saying they provide salvation. But I would argue it is missing a huge theological point that this passage here is making, and I think other uh, New Testament passages are making, which is that the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is to give you direct and close relationship with God the Father himself. And the whole point of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is so that you can commune directly with God the Father. And so you don't need anybody to communicate a request for you like a game of telephone. God is not limited by space. You're just as close to God the Father through the Holy Spirit as anyone in heaven. And so if you think you need James or Bartholomew or whoever to bring a request to, to God for you, then you're selling salvation short, in my opinion. You're missing a blessing that's been given to you. Now, I'll get to your question in one second. What about Jesus? So I think you can probably find passages in the epistles where people make requests to Jesus. I think you could also argue this passage says you don't need to do that. You can make requests in my name directly to God the Father. I think you can make an argument that evangelicals are sloppy all the time in how we pray and who we're praying to and we confuse the members of the Trinity and we shouldn't do it. I think, you know, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness even when we don't know what to pray for. And so I don't get too wound up when we mess that up. Um, but I didn't look into that. Yes? Sure. So I think um, there's nothing in the New Testament that would support the idea that people in heaven are sitting around watching events on earth like a television show. So I think um, it's unlikely that Bartholomew, whatever he's doing in heaven, is waiting for you to pray and ask him to deliver a message to Jesus for you. 
So, yeah, I think that's a huge problem with the idea of praying to the saints. Um, I do disagree uh, with the view of soul sleep, and let's see if I can find it, because I think Philippians has a verse that helps with that. So if you look at Philippians 1, 22, um, that's part of a passage where Paul is acknowledging that he doesn't know how his imprisonment's going to turn out. He might get executed, martyred for Christ. And he says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so I think most um, commentators take that and say that is support for the idea that as soon as you depart from this lifetime, you're in the presence of Christ in heaven, which is our word for describing this place that I think probably isn't even part of the space-time continuum where you're in the presence of God and Jesus. And so I don't believe in soul sleep. I do believe the saints that have gone before us have a conscious awareness of what's happened and they're with Christ. But I don't think they're sitting around watching Sioux Falls TV. But, you know, we're talking about one verse, so... Other people disagree. So what do you, just uh, an argument, the whole asking you receive, if you're asking in Jesus' name, I know there are some people who, are, who will say that some evangelicals will use, you know, like, okay, we want somebody to be healed. And we pray in Jesus' name, but we always say, but thy will be done, right? That's, and some people will say, well, that's your cap out. Um to not having faith that God can do this. Yep. So remember, Jesus says, even faith as small as a mustard seed could move a mountain. Um, So I don't, I think that is a terrible thing to say to someone, you didn't get what you want because you just didn't believe hard enough. I think um, what is, you know, and if you, and we fall back on this example all the time. You look at Paul praying for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it's not. Does anyone here really want to tell the Apostle Paul, you didn't have enough faith, Paul? I just don't think you know how to pray. If you had left out three words, that thorn would have gone away. Does anyone here really want to say that? And that's really kind of what you're saying to that person when you say that. So I've always thought that was a terrible mistake that causes a lot of unnecessary pain for people that that idea made its way into certain branches of Christianity. I think some of the people that say that are dear Christian brothers and sisters, but I think that concept is misguided. I don't think... God's just sitting there saying, well, I'm just waiting for Joe to try hard enough. But I will, you know, and I think it, part of it is the product of most of us, most of the time, hate, ambiguity, and uncertainty. 
And so what it, that view does do is it gives you a certain reason why something didn't happen and a solution for it. Whereas I prayed as hard as I could for this thing to happen that it was really important and I wanted to happen and it didn't, leaves you in the, well, why did God not answer my prayer and you don't know? And so that uncertainty is painful in its own way, but I'd rather take pain that's grounded in reality than a fake solution that I think is misguided and leads to its own set of pain, personally. So I'd be comfortable um, praying in your name, although to go back to, I think, a comment Laura made, the one question with that is that makes it sound like the object of your prayer is Jesus, not God the Father, whereas usually we start our prayers directed to the Father. So that's one of the examples of, I think, we often get ourselves twisted up in the Trinity as we're praying. Um, So I like in Christ's name better than in your name for that reason. If someone is saying in your name, not because they're afraid to speak the name of Christ, I wouldn't have a problem with it so much. But I don't like the idea that we're going to say in your name because we're scared to say Jesus' name. And I get where institutions like the army are in the bind where they're really a secular organization and they're trying to be welcoming to people of any faith and they're trying to provide these chaplains, I wish they would just provide more chaplains if they felt like we can't rather than watering down what each chaplain does, but hashtag budgets, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what your take on that is. But yeah, I feel like that's a, that's a step that I don't like at all. I think you're losing the Christianity at that point, unfortunately. I get it. You know, I, I have to be careful about what I order someone to do. So, like, I think there's a good drug recovery program called Teen Challenge in South Dakota and other states but it's expressly Christian-based, and so I don't think it's appropriate for me when I'm wearing my secular hat as a judge to order someone to go to Teen Challenge. If they tell me in court, I really want to go to Teen Challenge, I think that's the best drug recovery, I said I'll include that language 
into order and hold you accountable to what you've said you want to do, but I'm not going to tell someone who doesn't want to go there in my role as a secular judge. Good question. Anything else? All right, well, let's end on a happy note. So where, where he ends this um, in verse 33 is, I've told you these things so that in me you have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So the, the happy note that he ends on is that, yes, this terrible time is coming when you're going to be scattered, but take heart, you're ultimately going to have peace as this process, and it will be an everlasting peace once it's accomplished, because once the victory over the world happens, it's in God's hands, and no one can take anything out of God's hands. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's stop there.